Okay, welcome back to another episode of Cognitive Evolution. I am Cody Commerce. Uh, so there's a couple things uh, I want to start off just touching on. Uh, the first is that I've been working on basically how to integrate Twitter into my life in a, a healthy way and a happy way. And I haven't exactly figured this out yet. I've actually found it kind of tough. Um, a, to find a way to enjoy Twitter and have it be a positive aspect of my life when I open it up that it doesn't consistently, uh, that it brings me consistently positive feelings instead of consistently negative feelings. And the other thing is that I've found uh, a hard medium to produce content that I'm satisfied with. And uh, so on the, on the first front in terms of making it uh, happy, um, as a presence in my life. The, the, so uh, I, I've tried a couple different strategies. One is, uh, so I've tried following very few people at first, right? Which is the sort of rationale behind that is that it's like, well, if I am giving these people a direct line into my consciousness, where whatever comes into their mind is now going to become part of my mind, then I want to be really selective about who those people are going to be. And the problem with that is that they had, in a sense, a too direct line into, um, into, into my mind. So, you know, there are people who are worth following, who have, who have genuinely interesting insights. One of them, for example, would be the uh, venture capitalist Paul Graham, who has a really good Twitter and a really good blog. Uh, uh, and is a little bit outside of my normal sphere because he's Silicon Valley rather than psychology. But at the end of the day, it, for me to hear everything that pops into his mind, uh, it's it's too looming of a presence um, in my in in my own thoughts and in my own in my own day, and uh, it becomes just a little bit too significant to always uh, sort of have latched my uh, experience onto his. And so uh, the strategy that I've been following more recently is to follow lots of people, to sort of have this profligate, I'm going to put myself out there, um, and just whoever comes across my screen, whoever comes uh, and sort of looks interesting, uh, I'm going to uh, follow. They don't even have to look interesting. They just have to cross my screen. It's like, well, you know, if I really don't like what they're putting out there, uh, then I'll, you know, unfollow them. And that has actually been a lot better because it takes away that sort of um, no one person is that significant. Uh, and if I find that they're, you know, sort of uh, bringing some aspect of, of negativity or negative comparison to my life, I can unfollow them. And, uh, but uh, it, uh, it, it, there's another couple benefits, which is that so you get a lot more varied action in your in your feed, right? So when I was doing the follow very few people, it was this highly curated set of people who were giving me a, a very small range of content. And I found it uh, much more engaging to have a wide and more unexpected range of content. Um, and another thing is that uh, I've been also, in addition to following you know people who are sort of in a similar place to me, whether that's uh, psychology PhD students or psychology professors, uh, going and finding people in other disciplines to follow. So for example, um, uh, you know, like I said, Paul Graham, he's Silicon Valley venture capitalist. 
introducing people like that into my feed is useful and sort of what I do there my trick is that I will go to someone that I respect like that and I will see uh, I will go into their list of followers and I will um, just sort of click through whoever looks interesting there and add them to to my feed and that's a good way to get um, uh, you know people who are outside of your immediate sphere into your feed and the other thing there is that you start to notice wow all of the people that this person is following is from their domain and I really am not connected with very many of them at all and you can kind of start to realize that that's our natural inclination no matter who we are and I think that's a good force to counteract uh, and then in terms of the producing content thing I still I'm still trying to figure out how best to use Twitter as a way to make meaningful contributions to some sort of um, you know, intellectual conversation, uh, and that's a work in progress for me. But uh, I'm I'm trying different things, and so you can, if you scroll through, you can kind of see that. Well, I'm 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 trying different things, and I'll you know do one or two, uh, you know, spurts of it, and then uh, it sort of drops off because it doesn't quite feel right. And so I'm still trying to see where where I land on all that, and I will uh, talk about that more if I reach some level of clarity on it. But so anyway, if uh, you'd uh, like to connect with me on Twitter. I am at Cody Commerce, and uh, there's a good chance, though not a 100% chance, that if you follow me, I'll follow you back because that is how I'm working it right now. The other way to connect with me is through my newsletter, uh, which I've talked about over the last couple episodes. Uh, that is called Friendship Friday, and the idea there is uh, that it's uh, it's quite difficult to make uh, friends and, and connect meaningfully with people in adult life, and uh, uh, at the end of the day, this is this is something that people don't really talk about. Strategies for doing it well and psychological research on how best to connect with people in this deeper and longer term way. And so it's just sort of my opportunity to explore um, my own process in that and to delve into the psychology research a little bit and sort of uh, hopefully do a little bit of, of filling that gap. Um, since we talk about success and love and career and all this sort of stuff, but not necessarily friendship itself. And so anyway, if you'd like to subscribe to that, that's on my website, codycommerce.com slash newsletter. Um, and uh, you, can, you can find the uh, subscription button there. Anyway, so I, I, I had a, a, a really interesting guest on this week. And uh, her name is Nikki Clayton. Uh, her official title is Professor of Comparative Cognition in the Department of Psychology at the University of Cambridge. Uh, she is a fellow of Clare College and a fellow of the Royal Society. She is also scientist in residence at Rambert, uh, formerly Rambert Dance Company. So um, let's see. The way that I found Nikki was that um, so my own my own research is interested in in theory of mind and how we understand other people, particularly people who are different than ourselves. And so uh, uh, I, I'm interested in, in sort of what we're, as a field, overlooking about theory of mind, understanding perspectives that are different than our own. And when you have two people who are from very different backgrounds and a misunderstanding occurs, why, why does that occur? When, when are we good at it? Uh, when do we fail at it? And how do we get better at it? And so anyway, uh, you know, taking some non-standard approaches to that, one way to sort of try and understand that is to look 
not just across different kinds of humans, but different kinds of species, right? How do different kinds of species uh, understand one another? So for, first of all, you can look at conspecifics within a species. So uh, if, you, if you have um, uh, you know, two chimpanzees, how does theory of mind work between them? But you can also have humans looking at a different species. Um, how does a human understand a chimpanzee or vice versa? And so anyway, I, I sort of have a loose, uh, you know, sort of uh, finger on the pulse of the animal cognition literature with respect to this sort of stuff. And so uh, one day at Oxford, there was a talk, a seminar being given by a professor. I don't actually remember who, who it was now. But uh, anyway, she was uh, talking about all this. And uh, as with these animal cognition researchers, they always have amazing videos in a way that no one else in psychology does. And so uh, a couple of those videos reminded me of the, uh, you know, sort of foundational animal cognition experiments for which I'd seen the videos in my introduction to cognitive science class back in undergraduate. And so after the talk, I sort of got into, you know, sort of like uh, going down a little bit more of a rabbit hole on, on some of this stuff. And, um, you know, where that led was essentially to Nikki's work. Uh, where uh, she is this foundational figure in, in really figuring out how uh, our sort of th the notions of psychology that we usually apply to humans apply to animals, specifically corvids, um, which would be, uh, you know, sort of in uh, layman's terms, the, the crow family. And uh, yeah, so she's uh, fantastically interesting, a hugely important scientist, and uh, it is in immediately apparent that she's also just a completely delightful person. And that comes out from the sort of second that you start uh, corresponding with her and also you'll be able to hear it in the interview here. And one thing that's interesting about that is that she's almost so delightful of a person that I feel like I, I f uh, in a sense, failed to do her justice with this interview, to be honest. Not that she doesn't say interesting things, because she, she clearly does, and there's, there's, there's no doubt that um, what she brings to the table is, uh, you know, uh, phenomenally interesting and, and, and eminently worth hearing. But, I, you know, for me, I bring this one perspective, my own perspective, which is kind of very narrowly focused on achievement and okay so tell me how you did it what does it mean give me give me you know sort of a narrative behind it and you'll be able to hear this in the interview but there's some sort of disconnect between the way that I tend to ask people about their life and the way that Nikki views her own life and um, I think the way that she views it is really beautiful and not that she's not achievement oriented obviously she's achieved amazing things but she has this way of taking life as it comes, um, which means that she doesn't necessarily evaluate it on the same scale that I do. And so a lot of the questions that I asked her were sort of incommensurate with the way she thinks about her own experience. And um, like I said, she still says a lot of interesting things, but you can, I think if you listen carefully, you can hear that disconnect. Uh, and especially towards the end, you can hear me fumbling a little bit where um i am i am at asking her questions that to me seem interesting but clearly uh don't uh, are not 
yeah, they're not uh, in tune with the way she thinks about it. And um, there's something interesting in the space of things that we're talking about, uh, but I can't quite put my finger on how exactly to frame it in a way uh, that makes sense. And so you can kind of hear me going through this process of like, well, I know there's something here. How do I frame it in a way that is um, sympathetic to the way she thinks about it? And so that was an interesting experience for me. Uh, I'd obviously like to do a, a better job and, and, and be up to the task of, of interviewing everyone every time. And I do feel like I let her down a little bit, if I'm being honest. Uh, like I said, it's still an interesting interview because she's, she's phenomenal. But um, it's definitely a part of the learning curve for me. And um, I, uh, you know, just different kinds of, of people conceive of their own experience in different kinds of ways. And, you know, even in the interviewers that I really respect, I have seen them fuck this up a number of times. Uh, and so it's, it's something that you always have to be expanding your repertoire with because, I mean, in, in, in theory, there are arbitrarily many ways uh, potentially unlimited number of paradigms for people to sort of think about their own life with though in practice it's probably a relatively small number of um, you know uh, sort of standard templates for how people organize their own experience um, but of course you are always going to be shackled to the one that is your primary primary source at any rate I uh, this is uh, uh, a really interesting uh, interview that, that captures a number of things that uh, don't often talk about uh, on the show. Probably most obvious of those is the phenomenological experience of what it's like to be a bird. Uh, so if you want to connect with uh, Nikki Clayton more, uh, you can find her in association uh, with, with Cambridge and Rambert, and then on Twitter, at Nikki Clayton 22 So uh, without further delay, uh, I'd like to introduce to you Nikki Clayton. So, uh, Nikki, one thing that really impresses me about your mind is uh, just how expansive it is, right? So you're you're at home in psychology, zoology, biology, as well as dance and yoga, and uh, <laughs> sort of you know, for me, when I look at you and your body of work, it somehow you know you just make it feel like it's all coming from the same place, like it's all connected in some. Uh, inexplicable way right. so uh yeah so i'm really looking forward to unpacking all that and so thanks for taking the time to talk to me today it's a pleasure great so uh you recently took a trip to china that was before the whole coronavirus thing broke out that's right uh, but it looked it looked like it was a pretty incredible trip and so i was wondering if you could say just a little bit about what that was and what you did there um well Clive Wilkins, who's artist in residence in the psychology department, and I do a lot of work for the China-UK Development Centre and the China-UK Development Council. And we go to China at least a couple of times a year with them um, to teach students in China and sometimes also teachers in China, sharing our ideas about creative thinking and imagination, integrating um, evidences from the science, the sciences and the arts to explore the subjective experience of thinking, of remembering, of seeing, and of reflecting on our memories and thoughts of what happened. 
so so why why China? Did you did you have a personal connection to it before you started going there? Well, because the company is the China UK Development Council, so obviously they're interested in fostering links between the United Kingdom and China. Sure. So it started from your sort of broader interest in dance and everything you're involved with there, and then you got connected with a particular organization. No, I wouldn't say that's how it happened. It, it really started when Clive and I gave a talk, um, which was an introductory talk to the um, Cambridge University Graduate Orchestra, and it was before one of their performances. And Michael Zhou, um, who is one of the co-founders of the China UK Development Council, attended the lecture and afterwards he said, could he arrange to meet with us and explore some things? And when we met with him at Clare College, that's really where the plans started hatching. He said, well, I, I was very interested in what you said during your talk and I wondered whether you'd be interested in giving some lectures to Chinese students when they come over to the UK, which we did, and everything from developed from there. And so now we regularly give talks when Chinese students come over to the UK and we also go to China to give talks in their home territory. So that's really how it started. Wow, that's really cool. And it's a wonderful organisation um, because the three co-founders are all people that have done PhDs in the UK and having got an awful lot out of doing a PhD in the UK they want to share their expertise and create opportunities for others to enjoy the UK education system and have a cultural exchange which is a very wonderful and honourable thing for them to be doing. Do you get an opportunity to interact with any of the individual students? Like, is there is there anyone that you feel like you had a special connection with or have, have been able to sort of maintain any sort of relationship with? Oh, yes, because what happens is that they have um, somebody over in China who is fluent in English to look after us while we're there and act as translator when required and we now have a regular person that looks after us every time we go called Shane and it's it's wonderful then to build up a connection and get to know someone and feel that you know that you're going to be looked after very well that it's somebody that understands your needs and your wants and and just helps to make it a magical experience so we love going to China yeah um have you had an opportunity to explore the country Oh, yeah, we've travelled in many different parts of China now. Any favourites? Um, mm, well, I think Shanghai is a very wonderful place. It's, it's kind of a bit like the Chinese version of Chicago in some ways, or at least oh, that's yeah. how Clive and I think about it. Um, but Xi'an is also quite a special place, the home of the terracotta warriors. And, of course, you know, Beijing is, well, it's... Beijing, it's very special. Place. Yeah. So those are probably three um, of our favourite places, but we've been to many places. Um, but through CUDC, we've travelled a lot. And then we also work with um, Anna Lawrence at the um, Cambridge, I'm trying to think what, what the official title is, it Cambridge International Education and Culture Centre. And we also go to China um, with 
Anna Lawrence as well. And again, it's a wonderful experience to... Um, there it's often with high school children as well as universities. So we've had a range of experiences of talking to younger people and older people in China, and it's fantastic. So uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about your background in dance. When did you start dancing? Oh, gosh. Well, as long as I can remember, really, once I started figuring out how to use my legs, I wanted to dance. And, you know, I did ballet classes and things as a as a kid and then became very interested in salsa and Argentine tango and jazz and lots of different dances. But I suppose that the thing for me is that it's all about wanting to be a bird and wonder how they think and how they move and what it feels like to be a bird. So I've got invisible wings and the whole sort of bird thing has been a very important part of my psyche that led me both into a passion for wanting to dance and a passion for wanting to study birds, and that's what got me interested in zoology and psychology, because I was interested in their behaviours, their mannerisms, their movements, and their thoughts. So it's really the birds that is the linchpin behind these different varied activities. So did you have like an early childhood experience that sort of opened your mind to, wow, uh, you know, like there's this, you know, the incredible subjective life of birds i want to know more about it or was there uh you, you know what, what was was there just always sort of like a, a connection there uh between yeah, your own no, soul and the soul of the birds no specific experience just a fascination yeah. for birds uh and so did it was it clear to you from the outset that there was connection between uh, what would become your professional career with the more cerebral understanding of, of, of the zoology and the, the psychology there. And then you also had the sort of experiential component in dance. Was it always clear to you that there was a connection there? Or did no, that sort of develop I think over time? You know, I think the thing with ideas is that they grow organically. You know, it's it's not that age four I woke up with a plan and a vision of where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. Yeah. But you're your eyes and your ears are naturally attracted to some things more than others. And I, I've always been fascinated by birds, and that's led me to where I am today. But these things emerge gradually and organically, and you can trace a line back and go, oh, well, she did this, and then she did that, and then she did the other. But I don't think it's as purposeful as that. I, I suppose right. my motto is enthusiastic serendipity. Yeah. So, so what, is, what does that mean to you? Well, serendipity is about the fact that you can make your own luck. You know, that it, it's, not, it's not a fixed timeline that I did this in order to do that. You know, it's not as simple as A led to B led to C. But if you open your eyes and ears and look for opportunities and then grab them as they come along. Interesting things can happen. So I, I suppose it's about sort of having being aware that there could be interesting things on your radar potentially, um, and then when they come along, having the freedom and the confidence and the time and the courage to go, that sounds good. I don't know what will come of it, but I'm going to try it. 
Uh, and so uh, what? Uh, so that makes sense. And then the so the enthusiasm part is the the willingness to engage with your sort of full full being in that whatever whatever that serendipitous connection is. Well, I suppose the CUDC connection is a good example of that. Who would have thought that there'd be the opportunity for Clive and I to, you know, do this amazing work and interact with these wonderful Chinese people. We didn't set out to do it. We didn't even know of its existence. But we happened to give a talk that piqued the interest of somebody who then made connections for us. And I suppose the whole way in which Clive and I started working was serendipitous. We're both tango dancers. We met on a tango no longer floor. For the first couple of years, we didn't talk to one another because, other than to say hello, because that's not what you do at a tango belonger. You're there to dance, not drink coffee and talk to people. And then eventually, realising that we enjoyed dancing together, we started talking and realised that we had similar interests. Although he's an artist, by trainer, a fine art painter and writer, and, you know, my my work is largely um, investigating cognition in corvids and other animals, um, including human beings, particularly children, we realised that a lot of the bigger picture issues, like what mental time travel is, so how we can travel back to the past to remember what happened and use the same process to imagine the future, how we're interested in perception and memory and its subjectivity, were things we both shared in, in common. You know, it didn't set out that way. It, it just happened that we met on a dance floor and then eventually, after many dances, we started exploring common interests. And at the time, I'd been invited to give a, a Michael Faraday discourse at the Royal Institution. And I asked Clive if he'd be happy to do it with me. And at first, he wasn't sure about it. Um, but then we decided, yes, we'd go ahead and do a double act combining science and art to explore memory. We called it imagination, the door to identity, and everything from took off from there. But, you know, I, I suppose it's about leaving doors open and being willing to knock on doors, knowing that some people are going to say, no, not interested in that, or no, that won't work. But trying a few things, and then by trial and error, I suppose, some of those things work and lead to interesting new paths. Yeah. So I suppose that's what I mean. It's not it's not a planned thing that I have this vision of there's the road to Nirvana. Not like that at all. But you try something, you get feedback, it piques the interest of some and other things don't and you follow your nose and then interesting if you're brave enough to kind of go, I'm not gonna be too upset if it doesn't work, I'm just gonna try my best and, and see what happens, then interesting things may happen but sometimes that means taking risks sometimes you know it means that you might do something that others might think is a bit silly and pointless but if you don't try you don't know yeah well certainly the way that you describe it is uh, i'd say in incredibly beautiful and inspiring in a lot of ways and you know i also think that uh you know even though we've only been talking for a few minutes it's your uniqueness is very apparent in in, in who you are. Uh oh. <laughs> you know, right? And uh, to me, I guess it it seems like it manifests in in a couple ways. One is that you have this you you seem to have this exquisite sensitivity 
to the world around you, right? Which is probably to some extent there in many great scientists where there's all this amazing stuff happening around you. For you, it was uh, the sort of internal lives of, of birds, I, I suppose. But you are just sensitive to the, uh, the presence of it in a way that if we're being honest, there is no there's no reason that a human has to be sensitive to these things in the world around them. And it's a very uh, compelling and I think very to some extent unique uh, aspect of, of, of you know how, how you come off and I assume to some extent who who you are and, and how your life has gone. And uh, there's another thing which I think is is interesting here, which is uh, your ability to, take the world as it comes right to be open to those experiences certainly you know in 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 this show talking to people who are successful the vast majority of them have the same sort of thing like well you know something happens you never know where it comes from uh but uh, a lot of people have this more tightened down you know oh i'm going to plan out i've got this sort of path to success to some extent and not that you don't have that, but your willingness to appreciate life for what it is and what it turns out to be, uh, you know, so, sort of comes through in the way that you describe your your experiences. Oh, thank you. I guess one of the things that I've learned from working with artists and specifically both Clive Wilkins and Mark Baldwin, and by way of introduction, Mark Baldwin is the uh, worldwide famous choreographer um, I call him the brilliant Mr. Baldwin. Um, he was artistic director of Rombert Dance Company um, for a long time um, and now freelance. But working with the brilliant Mr. Baldwin and the amazing Clive Wilkins have taught me quite a lot about how to engage in creative processes, I suppose, and the whole idea that it's important to let ideas grow organically and to just set time aside to really unpack ideas together and make sure that we're, we are coming from the same homepage or singing from the same choir sheet, if you like, but also at the same time acknowledging that we have different skills and expertise to bear and that integrating them together is one of the most inspiring and exciting things so, so I, I think as a scientist you know I was very much trained well with, with the I, message you have to say everything in such yeah. a way that it can it should be replicable and everything should be as unambiguous as possible you know you need to define exactly what you mean by a and b and whether you're adding them together or multiplying them whereas i think in art very often it's it's much less prescriptive and ambiguity can become a tool, whereas in in a science method, it it you know is a nuisance. In art, it it, it can be a positive. And sort of setting aside ways in which we can explore ideas gives me a delightful freedom that I perhaps I couldn't have if I only used the scientific method. Yeah. So, do you think that there's anything? that the scientific method, particularly as it's practiced by psychologists, um, can learn from the tolerance of ambiguity in art. On the one hand, clearly, uh, you know, you want to be able to isolate a variable of interest and, uh, you know, in, in the ideal case, you'd be able to speak 
with certainty that, okay, this is what's happening here, the causal links. But when you study something as, as complicated and multifarious as human or corvid cognition, right, the, there is a natural kind of ambiguity there. And so is there a place for incorporating more tolerance of uncertainty and ambiguity, uh, perhaps especially when exploring sort of new terrain in uh, the cognitive landscape? What do you, I mean, so do you, do, you, do you think that there is more expansive ways to think about how we do science based off of your experiences with um, uh, creativity? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, I think firstly, we've got to remember that behavioral sciences are not like a mathematical proof or even physics, you know, there's so much more ambiguity anyway in what we do. And I think I don't want to go into it in detail, but I think that, you know, the whole reproducibility crises um, that are, are being uncovered in, in psychology are a case in point on how we've got to be, we've got to think twice about about how to interpret some of the findings and per perhaps thinking more about potential candidates of rather than hardcore evidence of. So I, I think that thinking about things from multiple perspectives is always right. very helpful. Certain, so I... But it's important, and I'm not saying by that throw the scientific method out by any means. I'm just saying that I think it's it's helpful to explore things from multiple perspectives, and I suppose that's what I feel I've always done in all aspects of my so life. So what um, sort of impresses me about you know, sort of your position there is that there is not going to be a case in which your understanding of, uh, you know, cognition, whether human or corvid or whatever, is divorced from the reality of what's actually out there, right? So you um, are really connected to the world as it exists outside of the lab and as it's experienced by a subjective agent and, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, my personal worry in, uh, you know, the sort of opposite reaction of that, right, where everyone is worried about here's replication, here's, um, you know, uh, the, you know, rigorous statistics, is that by sort of optimizing for uh, internal validity like that, sort of scientific uh, rigor in, in that sense, we are removing ourselves from the actual object that we care about, which is uh, cognition in, in, in the wild, right? And so I think um, certainly in, in my generation, there's almost an over-correction over where um, we are more concerned about reproducing experiments and having rigorous statistics than we are about actually describing something that exists in humans as they think about the world around them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to touch a little bit on, uh, you know, sort of you mentioned thinking about other things from the, from thinking about things from, from multiple perspectives. And so you talked about your sort of subjective connection to, um, uh, to, to birds and there are other, uh, you know, sort of documented cases of, uh, you know, people feeling like they can really understand another mode of. Uh, you know, subjective experience. And I'm interested in, in how you think 
that comes about and how people can get better at that. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned that I, I find you very sensitive in, in your experience of the world, um, as, as far as I can tell. How do you think people can become more sensitive to the experiences of others around them? Gosh, well, there's a question. <laughs> I don't know. I think if it was an easy thing to do, um, right. we'd all be doing it, I suppose. What Clive Wilkins and I often talk about in some of our lectures is about how to be more aware of the blind spots in our seeing and the roadblocks in our thinking. And Clive is extremely talented in many ways. I've already mentioned that he's a fine art painter and a writer, but he's also a magician. And he's very interested in what magic effects reveal about the way we see. And what we've been developing together over the past 10 years or so is thinking about what magic reveals in terms of blind spots in seeing and roadblocks in our thinking. And there's a lovely little phrase that we often use in some of our lectures. It goes something like this. You don't remember what happened. What you remember becomes yeah. what happened. It's a very powerful little phrase. You don't remember what happened. What you remember yeah, really becomes good. what happened. And of course, we all know that our memories are subjective and selective. And yet the curious thing is that we want to take ownership for what we think we saw and what we think we remembered. And to make that almost like a fact. I know for a fact that I saw blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, no, I don't know for a fact. All I know is what my brain registers that my eyes saw. And magic effects are obviously very powerful. Version of that in, in when a very talented ma magician performs a beautiful effect for you, things appear to vanish in thin air. We know that they can't possibly really vanish in thin air, but the fact that that's what our brain tells us that our eyes saw is a good example of blind spots and roadblocks in our thinking. You know, this is actually something that I've been really fascinated with as well as this connection between magic and sort of our understanding of cognition. In particular, um, if you uh, obviously, I, I, I don't have to explain the basics of, of this to you, but if you go back and look at the sort of early you know, work on developmental cognition, sort of post Piaget and that sort of stuff, it's essentially um, performing magic tricks for children yep. and th the more fascinated uh, they are with them the more they violate their expectations that's right right and that and therefore we uh, can make inferences about their expectations about how the physical or social world uh, ought to work yep um, and so yeah I think there's there's a really fascinating uh, thing here I think there's there's another uh, sort of interesting point here this is not necessarily scientific but um, there in, in the, I think it was in the, the late 90s, there was this magic uh, TV show by, it was a special by David Blaine. Right. And, right. And so if you look at how, um, you know, magicians talk about that special with David Blaine, basically uh, what his insight was, was that if you turn, what, what's interesting about magic is not when the magician finished the trick 
and then says ta-da and then you know like that's the and what's interesting about magic is when you do it well watching people react to this you know completely confounding state of well i just saw something that's physically impossible but i just saw it. how can i like what so how do you reconcile that right and so the reason that that magic special um uh, made david blaine this world famous sort of uh magician was that he had this insight about turning the camera around what's really interesting about what's going on it's not the the magic itself but the the um uh reaction that it uh, uh you know elicits in the cognitive agents observing it absolutely so in a in a talk we have one called magic mind and in our talk we often say where does the magic occur the magic occurs in the mind of the spectator, not the hands of the prejudice. I can never say that word, prejudice to the magician. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Let's. Uh, I, I want to go back and, and talk maybe a little bit more concretely about some of your um, early career experiences. So you did your undergrad at Oxford in zoology, right? That's right. That's right. And then, so uh, eventually, somehow, you ended up down the road uh, in a psychology department at Cambridge. Yeah. When did you sort of transition from um, zoology to psychology? I don't think I ever transitioned from zoology or psychology. I always wanted to do both. And I remember that in my interview at Oxford, I was wondering whether to read psychology with philosophy because it's PPP or zoology. They didn't do a joint degree in both. And I wondered which one to take. And then John Krebs, who was interviewing me, Lord John Krebs of Whiteham, said, well, if you read zoology, you could do, you could do a behavioural project um, on birds. And that was really the clincher for me, realising that the Edward Gray Institute for Field Ornithology was such an amazing bird place, if you like, where you could do fascinating research on birds in the lab and birds in the wild. And that's what swung me to read zoology. But I was always interested in the bird cognition, I suppose. It wasn't called that in those days, but I was interested in behaviour and cognition. And in fact, I did my undergraduate project on memory interference phenomenon in marsh tits, little birds, um, little parrots that hide food. And I was interested in looking at memory processes. So it was really quite a psychological project. And I was very lucky having John Krebs as a mentor because he was interested in psychology too and really sort of encouraged me and supported me to do quite a psychological um, research project, even though I was in a zoology department. And I continued my interest on from there, really. And as things progressed, it became really just an interweaving of, of an understanding of bird behaviour from a more biological point of view and uh, integrating that with a psychological approach as to how you would study memory and other kind of cognitive skills. So what was your experience then of the field coming to appreciate more about the nuances of the psychology of birds and, and corvids specifically? Um, was, there, was there a set of experiments that, that really got people thinking about that new way or did it happen slowly? What, what do you make of all that? I, I think there were a couple of 
lines of evidence, really. So but the first was that there was some beautiful work being conducted by Irene Pepperberg in the States on an African grey parrot called Alex. Sadly, he's no longer with us. She does have other parrots that she works on. And it became clear that this parrot seemed to have remarkable cognitive abilities. The bird was able to mimic human speech and not just use it randomly, but actually in a way that really showed that this bird understood fundamental thinking concepts. So Alex, if you gave him a tray of objects and you said how many wooden blue blocks are there, he could tell you the correct number as opposed to the total number of any blue objects. So there might have been blue wool and um, blue wood and blue plastic, and he could tell you specifically. Um, and he was able to do concepts such as same and different. So that work was um, very remarkable in many ways, although, of course, the skeptic might say, well, but it's just one parrot, isn't it? So it's sort of, it shows that a parrot can do it, but how general is it as parrots? parrots more generally. Um, so that was one key bit of information. And then at the same time, where I was in Oxford working with John Krebs and um, in other parts of North America, including Canada as well as the US, there were people also looking at these food caching birds, these birds that hide food, and showing that they had remarkable memories of where they'd hidden their food caches. And that got a lot of attention at the time because there were also neuro cognitive neuroscience scientists working on the hippocampus and the role of the hippocampus in spatial memory and realising that these birds had huge hippocampi relative um, to other non-storing individuals. And that led to this interesting relationship about the hippocampus and memory and that these food caching birds were good example of remarkable memories and at the time John Krebs and Sarah Shuttleworth and others argued that these food caching birds had adaptive specialization in the brain in the form of the enlarged hippocampus and in behavior in terms of these remarkable spatial memories and when I got a, my first permanent job which was at the University of California Davis I wanted to continue on the work I'd done in John Krebs's lab on memory and these food caching birds, but I decided to go in a different direction, perhaps because I'm not very good at navigating myself, and so I thought it ironic that these birds had amazing spatial memories and navigational skills, but clearly I did not. Um, and so I w was interested in asking, well, what else might they remember about caching events? And that's really what led me into the work, looking at their ability to remember not only where they'd hidden food, but which foods they'd hidden and how long ago, which led to my work on what's called episodic-like memory in these birds, the ability to remember unique past experience in terms of what happened where and when. It also led me into work looking at whether they could remember which particular individuals were watching, in other words, who, and that led me into a series of experiments on social cognition, and particularly with my husband, Nathan, Emery, looking at the fact that these birds could keep track of which individual was watching when and do a number of sophisticated tactics, behavioural tactics, to minimise the chance that their caches of hidden food were stolen by other individuals. Um, to sort of 
you know, keep going down that line. What is your current state of thinking on theory of mind broadly construed in, uh, in Burt's? Um, I don't really know how to answer that question, really. I suppose the way I've been approaching it is to look at the cash protection tactics that these birds can use. Um, and so that's one way of doing it. Um, I think in most cases, you know, trying to dis differentiate between whether an animal, be it a bird or uh, such as a, a corvid or be it a mammal such as a great ape, can keep track of what others are thinking or whether they're using behavioural reading um, is very difficult, if not impossible, to um, entangle because in most cases the individuals who have access to the knowledge are also behaving differently as a consequence of having access to the knowledge. So it's trying to disentangle behaviour reading from mind reading um, is probably an impossible task. Perhaps a better way to approach it is to say, might there be ways in which we could look at circumstances in, in which we can ask what kinds of behaviour they can read and what kinds of behaviour they can't read? Um, and I think that's informative. I did an experiment many years ago now with my then PhD student, Christoph Teufel, and my colleague, Jim Russell, looking at experience projection in young children um, in which the children wore in which the children had to wear goggles which they could either see through or not see through and then infer from their experience whether mummy could see and whether they also needed to inform mummy of given what she could see what she would know and the experiments were interesting because there were cases where even though mummy's behavior was quite obvious they couldn't necessarily infer what mummy could and could not see even though they could infer that mummy needed help in certain situations so there were interesting dissociations between what can be inferred if you understand that seeing leads to knowing and that not seeing leads to not knowing yeah that's really interesting you know, so there's one thing that sort of stands out to me in the sort of broad spectrum of, of theory of mind research, which is that the the ver the sort of what we're observing is always a binary outcome. There's either, you know, a successful theory of mind in a sense, or there isn't. And um, this sort of goes beyond the you know, sort of strict domain of theory of mind into attribution and that sort of stuff. But when you look at this broader question of how do we think about other cognitive agents, uh, clearly there's more to it than just a yes or no, did we do it, right? I mean, to some extent, it is the same thing as the project of psychology as it's practiced by psychologist right it's to what extent can we successfully explain be human behavior mm -hmm. and you, you know experimental psychologists it's quite obvious that this is a, a very difficult thing to do because otherwise we wouldn't be employed 
<laughs> and so the the extent to which uh, you know people can essentially do the same thing, right? Which is which is sort of inter- take take these noisy signals of other people's behavior and and make a successful interpretation about what what must be going on in their internal subjective cognitive universe is clearly very difficult. And and so one thing that uh, I think would be really interesting to see is you know sort of as we as we move forward in this line of research is to think of ways to construe what we're after in more than just a binary did it or did not happen right Mm -hmm. um and i think that'll be a really interesting thing to look at going forward sure so um let's see so you mentioned one of your students and uh you know certainly you were influenced by uh uh your your mentor yeah what what have sort of do you have you found any best practices for your own mentoring as your career has progressed? I don't think there's anything specific. I think it's about realizing that different individuals have different needs, and I don't want to be too constraining. I want to encourage them and support them, but I don't want them to feel they can't go off in a new tangent if that's something that they want to do. I think it's important having an open mind and not being prescriptive, really. So I don't think there's anything I I would specifically say um, other than don't be too narrow in things. You know, if you have other interests, it's not a crime to have hobbies. I'm not expecting people to be in the lab 24-7 and only work hard. It's about working carefully and efficiently and smartly it's not necessarily about just being bound to the desk or to a pair of binoculars you know the hard work's important but you also need other things because that's what gives you a healthy mind and a healthy body right and a healthier perspective on things so um we talked about some of the more recent things that you've gotten uh, into that have sort of, you know, they're they're part of this enthusiastic serendipity program. Mm-hmm. Uh, were there earlier experiences like that where you were going along on your normal course of work and something unexpected, uh, uh, you know, came out of the blue and really changed things for you? I really don't know how to answer that. As I said to you at the beginning, it for me, it really isn't a straight line. It's certain things happen and they lead you in interesting directions. And as you discover stuff, you go, oh, I think I, I think that's the way I should go now. Yeah. Um, so when you got to UC Davis, yeah. um, what, uh, where, w- when you started to get these really significant experimental results, did you feel like they were surprising to you in a way uh or were they really like yes i had always suspected that there was this immense sort of um psychological apparatus that these birds had and we just hadn't fully appreciated it in this rigorous scientific way um no i don't think it's that i mean i think if you feel you know the answers of the question before you conduct the experiment that's a then why are you conducting the experiments in the first place and b doesn't that ring alarm bells you know the scientists got what they expected to see um that just sounds like confirmation bias to me so i think it's it's always important to be open-minded but 
I can't deny that I was fascinated by the scriptures. They were all over campus, and what I noticed is that they really seemed to be looking at me and looking at others, and that's that made me intrigued to want to then try and study their behaviour in more detail and ask certain questions to see if I could tap into um, some of the cognitive processes that might be going on. So so you were observing this behavior while you were walking around campus. Are there places that... Uh... I can't go anywhere without watching birds. It's just what I do. Right. So That's like asking me to stop to sit still it's just not gonna happen right so are there any places that have been the most uh you know sort of significant sites of this informal field work that uh you you're really drawn to and, and have had no yeah no birds are just everywhere if if i'm walking down the street and there's a bird i'll be looking at it and listening to it yeah um yeah so are there places that you want to go does it matter to you how exotic the bird is, or is it just it just, it's just no? The... It's the behavior that's important. Yeah. Um, let's see. So, is there? I I uh, I want to be respectful of your time. We're sort of getting down to the last. Thank you. Yeah. A uh, few minutes here. So, just to wrap up, um, is there? So, I don't have any background in comparative psychology, though I obviously appreciate um your body of work and you know the work of your your colleagues and how incredible all of this stuff is and what it can tell us about the nature of cognition generally is there anything that in your experience um you would like more you know human oriented psychologists to understand uh that the you know perhaps the comparative psychologists have had more success in understanding think so the only thing that is a pet peeve of mine is when people say primates and birds or apes and birds and i always correct people by saying a bird such as a corvid a mammal such as an ape so i, I think just to sort of list birds under the one um, umbrella is is unfair yeah um and uh, certainly there's a lot to learn from uh, your natural practice of just observing interesting behavior as it exists in the world around you. Obviously, uh, for psychologists, that's something they do to some extent since they are interacting with humans all day. But I feel like the professional version of understanding it and the personal version of living it out can sometimes become uh, divorced in a way um that is is really too bad right and and it's really cool to see how your understanding of of what you're interested in is not just a professional endeavor it is it pervades every aspect of your life well thank you i suppose conrad lorenz who won a nobel prize in fact the only nobel prize that's been given for animal behavior then called ethology was known nine animal and my phd supervisor peter slater was a great advocate for this and i learned a lot from peter and it really is it's not that observing their behavior then simply allows you to say therefore i know they have amazing memories or something like that you have to do the experiments but i think it's important to spend time really observing the behavior first so that you design the experiment in the best possible way. 
So observation alone isn't enough, but observation is a crucial component to design the experiment well. Because if you don't design the animal well, then if you don't design the experiment well, then the animal isn't going to perform and that's not going to tell you anything. So it's about observing them carefully so that you design the experiment optimally. And then it's the pattern of similarities embedded within differences that is really going to help gain a better understanding of how they might be solving the task, of what they might be thinking, if you like, in colloquial terms. Well, Nikki, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Thank you. you. It's lovely to talk to you, Cody. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. And you. Bye then. So that was my interview with Nikki Clayton. Thank you very much for listening. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that there was uh, sort of towards the end, I was fumbling a little bit, and I don't think that I, I nailed everything about it. And you can tell that there's a little bit of a disconnect between uh, where I'm coming from uh, and where she's coming from. And of course, it is my job as the interviewer to try and bridge that gap. And I don't know that I did it successfully. Um, and I think one of the one of the things that happened there, one of the things that's crucial to uh, you know Nikki's perspective that maybe is a little bit less familiar to me is, and I mentioned this sort of at the beginning is is that sensitivity, right? And so you can hear me at the end asking her these questions about you know what I'm calling informal field work. And you can tell that she's sort of like, you know, what, what do you, what are you talking about? It's, it's, I mean, it's not informal fieldwork. It's just, you know, you go around and you, you're in tune with your environment and you see birds looking at you, and then that has this cascade effect, right? And so that's, um, you know, obviously not <laughs> exactly how those words go in her head, uh, but the point is, is that um, it's not a strategy to her, right? It's not a uh, oh, well, you know, if I pay attention to X, then that will give me insights about Y, right? And um, it is just a natural appreciation for the world around her, which uh, there's no doubt that um, that exists in all of us who are interested in, in science and humanity and, uh, you know, all of these things around us. I think, I think we are all uh, able to appreciate that to some extent, However, she clearly has it in spades on potentially a whole other order of magnitude than um, your, your average person, um, certainly myself uh, included. Um, and so for me, I, I try to be sensitive to those things and to pick up on things. And, and I, I think that there are some areas in which I, I, I am you know, potentially more sensitive than, than, than the average person. But clearly, uh, she has this deep connection with the world around her, especially the animal world, especially, especially the bird world. And um, I think that's, uh, you know, really inspiring. I think that's really cool. It's really beautiful. And uh, even though uh, I still have a lot to learn about the perspective of, of people who, uh, like Nikki, have that sort of really deep connection and are not constantly trying to orchestrate some sort of, um, you know, uh, further life scenario and calculating if they pay attention to X, then, you know, like that's going to lead them to the place where they want to be. I think I have a lot to learn about, um, you know, uh, people who are, are, are more like that. Um, 
but uh, at, the, at the end of the day, uh, you know, that, that's just something that I'm thinking about to try and improve on. Uh, but uh, there's still so much that I really did love about uh, my interview with Nikki and so many inter- uh, interesting things that she said. Um, one one theme that she mentioned a couple times that I really liked was, uh, I think the quote at the beginning was, the thing about ideas is that they grow organically. And um, that sort of bottom-up versus top-down approach to ideas is something that I'm really interested in right now. Because sort of my natural inclination is that I often come to, and this is going to sound bad, but I often come to a a conclusion before I have reached all of the evidence, uh, or before I've looked at all the evidence. And I think what's what's going on there is that it's, um, you know, sort of, I am just uh, uh, anxious and excited to get to the punchline, which is for me the big idea. And um, so I often will try and articulate what the point of what I'm trying to do is before I've, I've, I've really done enough of it. And so um, to me, what I take away from the idea of letting ideas grow organically is that you start off with something small and there's a germ of an idea in there and you don't really know what it is. But then over time, it grows into something and uh, what that thing is uh, potentially becomes significant and uh, it will grow to the extent to which it is significant enough to fill a uh, sufficiently large space. And then, perhaps in retrospect, then you can say exactly what it is, but um, at the time you don't really know what you're doing or necessarily why it's important. Uh, And that is a really useful way to uh, make ideas grow because it is based off of um, sort of their capacity for growth and finding the best in them rather than starting off with, oh, here's this big thing and I'm going to try and fill out everything uh, around it, which would be a sort of inorganic uh, you know, approach to, to ideas. And so I really like that theme that she touched on that, the way that she um, uh, you know, uh, talked about that in her work. Uh, and and obviously you can see uh, when you're combining art and science, it's really hard to start off with. Okay, here's the here's exactly how it's going to go, and let's fit everything into that box. The other thing that she talked about, which I think is a is a really good line, is uh, her her tagline: "You don't remember what happened; what you remember becomes what happened." And I think this will be a point that's somewhat familiar to 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 many of us in some way or another. And I think. Uh, to continue looking at this phenomenon from different angles and, uh, uh, you know, considering it in different ways and, and, and uh, you know, considering it anew every time is uh, extremely useful because I think it is one of the deepest insights uh, that psychology has to offer because it's about the fundamental nature of subjectivity and memory and our construction of reality. And... Um, you know, there's maybe two ways to look at this. One is from a sensory point of view, which is that, you know, as the empiricists uh, noted, there is nothing in the mind that is not first in the senses. And so there's this question about, well, how veridical are our senses and uh, how, how reliable is sensory information? How much of a correspondence is there between reality and what we're perceiving? And then the sort of second thing is that, well, okay, so let's set that aside. You have whatever you have in your mind that is stored in memory and then so 
sort of that is temporally entirely divorced from reality it is its own separate thing it's not connected to uh any sort of present phenomenon in any way and then uh so how that's stored and what the nature of that is becomes the only basis you have for constructing reality in this temporal dimension so the the sensory dimension it's it's sensory dimension is essentially a time slice right it's a it's a horizontal perspective on the world whereas memory is a is a temporal uh sorry i have that backwards the the sensory is a is a vertical time slice perspective on the world and the um the memory is a uh is is a horizontal temporal perspective on the world and these are sort of two fundamental aspects of how we organize reality uh and how we think about our place in it and what's going on and so uh, I really love what Nikki said, and I think that's you know some uh, a great uh, quote to have in the canon of psychology. You don't remember what happened; what you remember becomes what happened. So anyway, thank you for listening to Cognitive Revolution this week. I am Cody Commerce, and if you'd like to connect with me, you can do so uh, on Twitter at Cody Commerce, and then uh, uh, through my newsletter, uh, which you can find on my website, CodyCommerce.com. Uh, slash newsletter. Also, I just revamped my website, so if you'd like to check it out, um, uh, now is a good time to do so. Thank you for listening, and I will see you back here next week. Mm-hmm.